First Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes to Timothy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and of prayer. In our passage today, Paul continues to give instruction to his young protege, Timothy, but the instruction has shifted. Up to this point, we have learned about Paul's instructions to Timothy regarding prayer, regarding the roles of men and women in the church, the qualifications for elders and deacons. But here, the instructions shift to a warning and reminder that false teaching can cause people to wonder from the faith. As you and I both know, in 2023, we have more access to, quote, biblical content and biblical resources, especially in America, than we've ever had before in the history of the world. You can get on your phone, get on your tablet, get on your computer, turn on the TV, and listen to pretty much any sermon from anywhere in the world. And it is an amazing gift of God's grace to us that I can follow churches in Oregon if I wanted to, or Washington, D.C., or even South Africa or Australia. It's an unprecedented time in which we live, in which we can listen to preaching and read books about theology by simply clicking a mouse and it can be on our front doorstep as early as the next day. So again, this is a gift, this is a privilege that we have, but it is a gift that must be stewarded very wisely. Because just because someone has a podcast or is on TV or writes a book doesn't necessarily mean, even if they claim to be a Christian, that they actually are a Christian. So a certain level of maturity is required in order to be responsible with all of this access that God has given us to so much content. An example of this would be we all know the debates that go on about how old is old enough for your child to get a smartphone. And that's a, I'm not even touching that can of worms by the way, so there's a variety of opinions, a wide spectrum of opinions on what is the proper age for someone to receive access to the internet on a smartphone. But I think we could all agree this morning that if parents were choosing to give their one or two year old smartphones, that would probably not be the wisest use of their financial resources, nor the wisest way, probably, to raise their child. Why is that? Because we know developmentally that a two-year-old is not able to regulate their behavior. 
In fact, if you gave a two-year-old a smartphone or gave them your smartphone, they will never get off of it as long as you allow them to be on it. They don't have that ability to regulate how much time is the proper amount of time. Therefore, the same way with biblical content that we have access to. The more spiritual maturity one has, the better able they are to regulate and filter the teaching that they are receiving. If a believer just assumes that any preacher they listen to who claims to be a Christian is providing biblical and faithful truth, that would actually be pretty naive. Even those of you that are here for the first time listening to me today, you don't know anything about me. I could come up here and spew untruth, and if you didn't know your Bible, you might actually fall prey to that. So I don't want you to think that I'm just up here critiquing other teachers. I'm critiquing myself as well. You should always go to the biblical text. And what was happening here in the context of this letter, the church at Ephesus was beginning to fall prey to false teaching that had crept up within the life of the church. And we know already a little bit about these false teachers from earlier in chapter 1. Here's what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 4. He says, Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Then in verse 7, he says, Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So that gives us a little bit of a glimpse of what they believed. So now in chapter 4, we read that some within the church were beginning to fall prey to this type of teaching. And Paul is reminding Timothy that false teaching is something that God actually knew would happen. So this doesn't take him by surprise. It doesn't take God off guard at all. But because false teaching is prevalent, not only here in Ephesus, but today, we need to be on guard. And by the Holy Spirit, pursue spiritual maturity. So we're going to answer, based on this text today, four questions which are not just helpful to answer in regards to this text, but also helpful to answer any time we come across any teacher who is teaching God's Word. Here are the four questions. Number one, in the context of Ephesus, who was falling away? We'll answer that. Number two, who were these false teachers? Number three, what did they teach? And then number four, why was what they taught wrong? So who was falling away? Who were these false teachers? What did they teach? And why was it wrong? And I think these same questions would be good questions to ask even for us today as we evaluate the teaching that we hear, whether it be on Sundays, through a podcast, books, whatever it might be. So number one, who was falling away? in the context of this. Before even answering that question, let me just reiterate what Paul says in verse 1. He says the Holy Spirit knew, basically, that people would depart the faith. We're not exactly clear when the Spirit made this prophecy, but we do have examples earlier from the book of Acts where the Spirit is warning the church about things to come. One of the most famous ones is Acts chapter 20, when Paul is actually speaking to the elders at Ephesus. In Acts 20, verses 29 and 30, he says this, I know that after I have gone, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, some even from your own group. 
will come distorting the truth in order to entice the disciples to follow them. And we don't know with 100% certainty that this is describing what we're currently reading in Ephesus. But we do know that Paul and the Spirit and the disciples have been warned that false teachers will come in and try to teach a message that is contrary to the gospel. The important truth for us to remember, however, is that no matter how hard we try, no matter how biblical we try to remain to the text, that people, for a number of reasons, will fall prey to false teaching. They will wander from the faith. And even though this happens, we still serve a sovereign God who is all-knowing and all-powerful, and His plans and purposes in the world will never be thwarted. Now, sadly, the people in the church at Ephesus were the ones who were falling away. So who was falling away? The people in the church. It's important to note that false teaching doesn't just happen to random people out there in the world seeking some sort of spiritual experience. It can happen to people who sit in a church week after week. This is not just something that happens to people out there. It can happen to us in here. People who are faithfully committed to a body of believers can depart from the faith through false teaching. This can even happen if the pastors and elders of that particular church are faithfully proclaiming the word of God week in and week out. Look at how Paul describes these people. He says, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, Satan is ultimately the one responsible for false teaching. Sometimes I think, at least in my mind, we have this picture of false teachers holding a pitchfork and wearing a black cape and like spewing profanity, right? Well, this would be a prime example of a false teacher. This is someone who clearly comes from Satan. But that's not always the case. They might be dressed in really nice clothes. They might look as handsome, perhaps, as me, although probably not. But nevertheless, false teachers are not just scary, ugly-looking people. They can be good-looking, attractive, normal people when they stand before audiences to teach and preach. The reality is that false teaching is demonic because it is contrary to the gospel. When you look back in Genesis chapter 3, when Eve is being tempted by the serpent... I want you to notice the question that Satan presents to her. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That is not that threatening of a question. He wasn't yelling at Eve. He wasn't overtly saying anything blasphemous against God, he simply asked a question. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He didn't use bad language. He doesn't appear to be impatient. And yet, the false teaching is getting Eve to doubt that God knows what's best. And he did it in a very subtle and very sneaky and deceitful way, which is how Satan often works. So anything, any teaching that is contrary to the gospel or that goes against 
what God has clearly laid out in his word that Christians are to do ultimately comes from Satan himself because Satan is the author of lies. He is the one who deceives God's people. So a works-based righteousness is demonic because it's contrary to the gospel. A path to salvation without repentance and faith in Christ alone is demonic. It is a teaching of Satan because it goes against what the Bible clearly says about salvation. Any teaching that deceives people into believing something that is false comes from Satan himself. And we don't always talk this way in terms of when we think of false teachers. But based on the context of this letter and what Paul is telling Timothy, false teachers are from Satan and they should be treated seriously. So the warning for us as a church is to never think that any of us, pastors included, are immune from false teaching. We have to know God's word. We have to meditate on God's word, study God's word, and, and be able to discern truth from error. So the people that were falling for this false teaching were members of the church in Ephesus. But number two, who were these false teachers? Now, we already referred back to chapter 1, where we knew that they were devoting themselves to myths and genealogies, and they were claiming to be confident about things that they actually didn't know. But Paul gives us more detail here in chapter 4, when he says, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So, if Paul would have said sincere liars, then these would be false teachers who genuinely thought what they were believing and what they were teaching was true. But Paul doesn't say through the sincerity of liars. He says through the insincerity of liars. So these were hypocrites who knew exactly what they were doing. They were spewing false teaching and they knew it was false. And he also says that these teachers have consciences that are seared. And this is often translated in one of two ways. Either Paul is saying that these people were so hardened to the truth because of the hardness of sin in their hearts that they were not even aware that what they were teaching was false. I don't think that's the case because Paul said insincerity of liars. So another popular translation is that this idea of a conscience being seared is that Satan had literally, or figuratively I mean, branded these people. In the same way that criminals in the ancient world would be seared or branded with a sign on their arm or on their leg. When animals are branded with a logo to identify who they belong to, Paul is saying These false teachers' consciences have been seared. They have the stamp of Satan on them. The false teachers knew what they were doing. And they didn't really care that they were doing it. They were intentionally trying to pull people away from the truth of the gospel. This is why Paul warns Timothy of their presence in Ephesus. So, what about us? Are we prone... To take it easy on teachers who give Christianity light messages from week to week. 
who perhaps make us feel good about ourselves as we leave. They affirm us. They congratulate us. They make us feel like we can leave able to run through a brick wall. And yet they avoid teaching faithfully through God's word. They avoid addressing sin and the need for repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. The authenticity or the success of teaching or the authenticity and success of a sermon is not how you feel at the end of the message. It's how faithful that message is to God's word. That's the difference. Every week when I'm preparing to preach before you, I normally feel pretty bad about myself. Because I realize as I study the text how unholy I am compared to the holy God that we just sing about. I'm made more aware of my shortcomings and my flaws the more that I'm in God's word. Because one of the things that God's word communicates to us is how holy he is and how unholy we are. So in that moment of feeling bad for myself, I simultaneously feel grateful that Jesus died for me. That the shed blood of Jesus on the cross for my sin is the only thing that reconciles me to a holy God. So when we approach the text, not every text in the Bible leaves us feeling wonderful about ourselves. But every text in the Bible ultimately is pointing to someone, Jesus, who can make us understand that we are loved, that we are cared for, and that we can be redeemed through his sacrificial death on the cross, through repentance and faith in Christ alone. So these false teachers were not caring what it is that they were teaching about. They were insincere liars, and their consciences had been seared, Paul tells us. So that begs the question, what did they teach? Look at verse 3, because this is the crux of what Paul is talking about here. He says, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. This false teaching was a form of asceticism, which is when religious people make a decision to abstain from certain foods or certain activities with the intention of drawing closer to God in the process. And Paul fought against asceticism in this letter, in Colossians, in Titus. It's not always a bad thing to abstain. I think we're all in agreement on that. Jesus himself encouraged his disciples and his followers to fast. Fasting is encouraged in the New Testament. It is a way to deprive yourself of the pleasures of food in order to increase your intimacy with God. So Paul is not saying that having discipline and self-control are bad practices. But simply because you choose to abstain from something doesn't necessarily mean that you're increasing your communion with God. And it certainly doesn't mean that if someone refuses to participate that they're not a Christian, which is what was happening here in Ephesus. These false teachers were pressuring their adherents to avoid marriage and telling them that if you want to be a part of our group, not only can you not get married, but you must abstain from certain foods. In fact, Paul says that this group was demanding it. 
You can't demand something that Scripture doesn't demand. And you can't excuse yourself from doing something that the Scriptures explicitly tell you to do. So as we evaluate the teaching of God's Word, we have to ask the question, is what the teacher or the preacher or the book saying align with the Scriptures? Which means we have to ask ourselves personally, do we know the Scriptures well enough to be able to refute false teaching? So let me encourage you to saturate yourself in the Word of God so that you are equipped to handle false teaching and refute it when you see it. So this is what they were teaching. Abstain from foods and avoid marriage. So number four, why is this wrong? And Paul gives us a beautiful example here about how to properly refute false teaching. Look at what he does in verses 4 and 5. He says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So Paul can confidently say that marriage was instituted by God in the Garden of Eden, and therefore it is inappropriate for these false teachers to tell the people in Ephesus that they should not get married. Now, it would be different if these teachers were claiming that marriage has certain benefits and certain risks. That would be a whole different conversation. In fact, Paul had this conversation. In 1 Corinthians 7, when he talks about the benefit of singleness as opposed to marriage. But the difference between what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 7 and what the false teachers are teaching here is the false teachers were requiring it. Look at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 25. So you see the way that Paul dealt with this versus the way the false teachers did. Here's what he says. He says, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord. That's important. But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So what is Paul doing here in 1 Corinthians 7? He's giving his personal recommendation, his personal opinion. But we know that he would not mandate that all believers in Corinth remain single because he knows the Bible well enough to know that God created the institution of marriage in Genesis 3 and that anything God creates is therefore good. He knew the law and the prophets and the writings. He knew they were the inspired word of God. So he prefaces his comments here in chapter 7 by saying, It is my judgment. In other words, I'm going to give you my advice here, but no, I have no command from the Lord on this. So in the same way that Paul knows that marriage is good, he also knows that God has declared all foods clean. I'm almost certain, although I don't have evidence of this, but I'm almost certain that Paul would have heard the story of Peter in Acts chapter 10. When he receives a vision of a sheet dropping down before him with all of these various animals that as a good Jewish man, he was not allowed to eat. And what does God tell him or what does he receive in that vision? He says, take it, Peter, kill it and eat it. What God has made clean, 
do not call common. That's Acts 10, verse 15. So I'm sure Paul had heard this story, that all foods have been declared clean. But even before Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10, we have Jesus himself declaring all foods clean in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verse 19. So these false teachers were in violation of the Christian teaching regarding what a person could and could not eat. They were attempting to restrict the freedom of some in Ephesus, which they should not have been doing. So God has created food for human beings to enjoy and, by the way, for our survival. And when it is received with thanksgiving, Paul says, it confirms the food's goodness. Now, Paul is not saying that if a person refuses to receive it with thanksgiving, that it's therefore unclean. The food is clean regardless because God has declared it to be clean. But when Christians receive that food with thanksgiving before God, it confirms the goodness of the food that God has given them. Food is made holy because God said that we could have it. And everything he created in Genesis 1 and 2 is for our good. If you'll remember back in Genesis 1, the phrase that you see over and over again in the story of creation is this phrase, and God saw that it was good. Everything he made, every single day of creation was good over and over again. So when we pray for our food before we eat, we are not the ones making it clean by our prayers. So if you forget to say the blessing before you eat, it is not a guarantee that you will be struck down with a stomach virus. That's not what this is teaching. However, one of the reasons we do pray before we eat is to confirm the goodness of creation in the foods that God has given us to eat. God has already declared everything clean, and he has given us permission to eat it. But our prayer is a sign of our gratitude and our thankfulness of the foods that God has created for us. You are never unclean when you choose to eat a particular food. Your uncleanliness, my uncleanliness, has been dealt with forever on the cross. My sin was placed on Jesus. And in his sacrificial atoning death on the cross, he paid for my sin. He received the punishment that I should have deserved for my sin. And he therefore provided reconciliation for me back to God. On the flip side, I'll say that if the doctor tells you to avoid certain foods for medical purposes, it might be a good idea to listen to your doctor. I wouldn't use this and say, well, God said all foods could be clean, so it's cheeseburgers and fries every meal till the day I die. Probably a poor application of this text. But ultimately we know that by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are made clean, not based on what we eat, not based on whether or not we get married, but ultimately by the shed blood of our Savior. Marriage and food are both good things that God created. And Paul 
is refuting these false teachers. And he is telling Timothy, do not fall prey to this. Warn the brothers and sisters in Christ that any teaching that tries to add on to the truth of the gospel or take away from the truth of the gospel is false teaching. And verse 6 is sort of a transition verse that fits with both this passage and next week. So I'm going to go ahead and read it and we'll unpack it more next week. Paul concludes by saying, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So Paul encourages Timothy to show the church at Ephesus the truth. And if he does that, he will be a good servant of Jesus and prove that he carries on in the tradition of faithful, sound doctrine. So as we approach difficult teaching, as we approach teaching that we're, it's kind of like on the edge, we're not sure if this was true or not true, we're not sure if it's faithful to the gospel or not faithful to the gospel, because false teachers can be very crafty. They can be very subtle in how they teach and the language that they use. We should be asking ourselves the same questions that we ask of this passage today. Number one, does this false teacher cause people to fall away from the true faith? Is he beginning or she beginning to teach a message that is contrary to to the teachings of Scripture. Number two, who are these false teachers? When you listen to people, when you read books, you should do your homework and find out as much about that pastor or that teacher or that author as possible. Because as you dig, you might find out that they don't actually believe the gospel or they're a part of a church that doesn't believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Number three, you should find out what is being taught. Are you able to discern between truth and error? Is it blatant or is it subtle? Number four, why is it wrong? Like Paul was able to do in verses four and five, the more we know God's word, the more we can articulate when we spot false teaching. Back it up from the Bible. Don't just form your own opinion. Return over and over again to the truth of the gospel. Don't add to the gospel. Don't take away from the gospel. No one is saved by abstaining from certain foods or by avoiding marriage. We are only saved through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Some more questions to consider. How do we as a church guard against false doctrine? Are you able personally to guard against this? And one of the best ways to guard against it is by being with other brothers and sisters in community where you can dialogue back and forth about what you're reading or about what sermon you just listened to and encourage one another and hold one another accountable to God's word. Is most of your Bible intake coming online? Is it coming from someone way, way far away? The best way to form solid biblical truth is when you do it in community with others. When you do it with a pastor that you can know personally and go to him personally and discuss God's word together rather than someone who's on the other side of the world that you will never be able to sit down and have a conversation with. It's not that those sermons aren't edifying, but you're not living in community with those people. And it becomes much more hard to discern. 
If you're a banker or you go into the banking industry as a teller, you will spend a lot of time early on learning what all of the bills that we use look like. You will study them. You will learn all the ins and outs of how they're supposed to look. And one day down the road when you're accepting that money and you come across something that is counterfeit, you, able, you will be able to spot it like that. And the reason you'll be able to spot it is because you spent so much time looking at the real thing. Understanding all the intricacies of each dollar bill. And when we approach false teaching, it's the exact same way. The more we are in God's word, the more we saturate ourselves in it, meditate, study it, memorize it. The more and more we do that, the more easy it will become over time to spot teaching that is contrary to the gospel. And this can only happen as we grow in Christ, as we are sanctified more according to the Spirit. A 15-year-old who has been a believer for six months will not be as skilled at identifying false teaching as that 70-year-old woman who has been in God's Word for 50 years. So my challenge to you is no matter what the teaching is, no matter where it comes from, no matter how much you think that what you're listening to or reading or hearing is appropriate, that you always go back to God's Word. You should take my sermon today back home and line it up with the truth of God's Word. That is what God has called us to do. You are not to remain faithful to an individual. You are not to remain faithful to anything but the truth of God's Word. It is our standard for truth. And it is what helps us discern between truth and error. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this example that Paul gives us here. And while we don't want to be necessarily alarmists every time we come across a sermon or a teaching, we do want to be diligent and faithful to your word. And we want to hold every message and every sermon and every Bible study and every book we read up against the truth of your word. Because we know that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So God, make us a congregation that is faithful to your word Above all else, we ask all these things in Christ's name.